what do you say? Hi, everyone, and welcome to Conversations with Bacon. Hope you're doing well and having a great week. Um, before I get into the interview today, I just want to share a little bit of news that I'm excited about, and I hope you're excited about it too. I've got a brand new book coming out. It's called People Powered, How Communities Can Supercharge Your Business Brand and Teams, published by HarperCollins Leadership. It's going to be out in November, and there's a, a whole pre-order package that's available if you want to go and pre-order the book. But this is not designed to be an advertisement. I want to get into something that's a little bit more interesting, probably for everybody listening to this, which is my guest today, uh, Jason Warner. How are you doing, Jason? Good. How are you doing? It's living the dream. Living the dream. So... Um, we uh, we first met when I was at uh, when we were both at Canonical, and I want to get into the rap sheet in a second. But you're SVP of technology at GitHub, obviously large organization. Anyone who's interested in technology um, is going to be very interested in GitHub. But let's go through the rap sheet first of all. So when I met you, you were you you joined Canonical to 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 run the desktop team. Yep. And anyone who's familiar with um, with Ubuntu, particularly back then, will was probably familiar with the fact that the desktop was probably the most well-known element of, of Ubuntu. These days, things have changed a little bit more on the cloud and the server side of things, but you were running that team, and yep. a lot of users, a lot of politics, all that kind of stuff that's wrapped For, up in First it. day is when Mark announced Unity. <laughs> really? Yep. That was day one? That was day one. Okay, so if, if anyone doesn't know what that means, uh, go and look up Unity, and you'll find <laughs> out why that was interesting. And then you you know did great work at Canonical, and then you went on to Heroku, and you were VP of Engineering there right yeah and um, and 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 then you moved on to be the SVP of technology at github that's a big job so tell us a little bit about what comes under you in that regard at github sure so um, currently what I do is technology is encompassed by engineering infrastructure data and security so right. anybody who is basically pushing code or making sure that code runs right um, the technology brand can mean a lot of different things. Yeah. It's not just engineering. But yeah. when I had joined GitHub, it was also product and support, which is why it had a much broader purview, too. But post-acquisition, we changed the uh, purview a little bit. Right. So now it's all about code and running of code. Yeah. And GitHub is, I mean, while it might not be as large as a company such as IBM or, or Microsoft, it's, it's a sizable Organized. I don't know if you can tell me how many people work at GitHub. Oh, we're over a thousand. Over a thousand. That's what I figured. And a lot of those folks come in, un, in you know, under you or report into you. Um, one of the things that I've always admired about GitHub is there's this very strong internal culture of um, there's a project and many different stakeholders feed into that, right? So you'll have uh, engineers and community folks and lawyers and other people, and there's a very collaborative environment. But one of the challenges of an environment like that is getting making decisions, right? Is is what happens when you know, how do you ultimately get to a conclusion when people fed in and, and they've they've shaped that project in a certain way? How do you balance that notion of a collaborative environment with pulling the trigger and doing something? Uh, it, so th this is kind of one of the the hardest problems in the industry, I think, to solve. Is mm. How do you structure your organization? How do you run your organizations? How do you even think about who is in charge of which, what, or, or why? Right. And you can t you see this. Like some organizations are saying, hey, we're going to run a GM model, or we're going to run a functional organization, or we're going to do all those sorts of things. Yeah. My view is that none of those things work. 
right. um, in the long term. They're all kind of fake fixes for the problem, which is people. Right. People, at the end of the day, are what make or break software. Hmm. Um, and so you have to put some, uh, what I think are just some mental models in place. And I'm a big fan of like uh, um, uh, the RACI model, if you know what that oh, is, yeah. R-A-C-I. Why and don't I, you just explain that? Because some people might not be familiar with, with what that is. Uh, so RACI is just a, a simple construct to designed to bring people to um, some set of uh, clarity around the project. So who is RACI, R-A-C-I, who is responsible, who is accountable, who is consulted, and who is informed. Right. Um, it's an explicit decision-making framework, es essentially. And um, this is when you're defining the work that you're going to produce, right? Yes. As you identify those assignments effectively, assignments, effectively at that point. right? So as an example, you can say if, if there's this project is taken on and it's going to involve legal or marketing or somebody, you can say, hey, legal is consulted and informed on this, but they're not the decision makers. Right. Or another project could be legal as the decision maker on this one because right. of the nature of it, but you have to be explicit on it. Um, uh, this comes in various forms in the industry. Apple has it called DRI, who is yeah, the directly yeah. responsible individual. So when it comes to decision making, I'm a huge fan of making things very explicit. Mm. Who is going to make this decision? And the way I like to, to frame that is, uh, even as an executive, is thank you for the input. I will take that into consideration when making the decision. Right. And, and you have to understand, collaborative decision making is not a great way to run organizations as mm. you scale them. Yeah. Um, but you have to involve people, and that's you know at ends of the spectrum. You don't want to become a dictatorial organization, right? You, but you also don't want to become a decision, uh, an organization that's incapable of making decisions. Exactly. And I mean, I'm a, also a huge fan of RACI, and I use it a lot with with my clients because, I, to your point, it's it's a great way of saying, okay, we've identified a set of work that's got a genealogy to a broader set of goals or outcomes that we've got. But I found that that works out particularly well when you know that a piece of work has this set number of pieces that are involved. How do you approach it when it comes to iterations? So, you know, if you've got a piece of work and you start there and then you keep iterating, do you just break that down into different iterations and still have a racing model attached to it? Um, so typically, um, uh, answer the question broadly, yes. Right. Though it's important, I think, that what you do is anyone who is involved in decision-making, running, or um, organizing projects yeah. has to be uh, comfortable with a degree of opacity. Mm. Uh, and their job is to drive to clarity right. in that situation. So, so that might also mean we don't know what the next phase is. Mm. But once we do, we will organize the people again around that same sort of model and construct. Right, I see. So you're kind of like chunking the workout into different phases, but you may say, we don't have all the answers for the next phase right now. Exactly. We're just focusing on what we're doing. Yeah, and, okay. and it's it's important to do that because otherwise you'll have this inertia to get the project off because you'll have to define the next five-year roadmap for this right. thing and say, here's how we're going to make all of the decisions right now. And that's just not realistic. Yeah. You'll never get anywhere. So you have to say, hey, we're going to start today with what we know, and then tomorrow we're going to know more information. We'll expand that circle, and we'll keep doing that over right, time right, iterating. Right. Um, but if you don't, you'll never start. And if you don't have some sort of contract in place, you'll ne no one will actually know what goes on. You'll reopen decisions, and that's a that's another nightmare entirely. <laughs> so I I remember when when we were working at Canonical, one of the things that I was uh, uh, that really kind of changed the way I think about a lot of this kind of stuff is that <clears throat> um, Ubuntu at the heart of it was this six month release cycle, 
right? So at the beginning of that cycle, for those people who are unfamiliar with this, shortly before a cycle would kick off, we'd meet together and we'd define a set of work that we're going to execute in that six months. And there'd be a set of milestones that would sit within that, right? So there'd be, you know, um, a, a, a code freeze, there'd yep. be translations freezes, string freezes. And then ultimately, you'd ship at the end of that six months. So you get this regular kind of drip feed of content that's coming out. And of course, repeating the cycle and over, again, over and over again meant that we refined each of those pieces yeah. of the cycle, which I think is, to me, how you build skills in an organization. Now, every company is different in this regard. I work with some people where they have one-week release cycles or daily release cycles even. How have you approached that in your work, not just at GitHub, but beyond, like at Heroku as well, how do you think about like the period of time in which you break work into? Is it like a cycle, or do you tend to think of it in terms of individual projects or individual features? So I'm a fan of the idea of um, sprints, right? Um, and I'm a fan of one and two week, no more than two typically. Mm. Um, I think that if you develop skills that you could actually have releasable code or software that happens on a one or two week cycle, that's a good habit and yep. skill to build. Um, though uh, there's two tensions at play. Right. And that one is speed and the other one is safety. Mm, mm. Um, so SaaS-based organizations, large cloud infrastructure organizations, they have to have speed because that's the nature of it. That's, that's, that's the benefit of having <laughs> right. a, it's a kind, software. It's kind of the point. <laughs> exactly. However, the other side is you have to be able to do that as, with safety so the yeah. thing doesn't come down yeah. and all that sort of stuff. So those two tensions are at play. My job as the head of all of technology is to make sure I have the iteration cycles as fast as possible to allow that, but also the safety at play. Right. So if you think about that, I have a product engineering team that um, is running in one or two week sprints, but then I have an infrastructure team that is saying, here are the here's the ways in which you're going to release software to the 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 systems. Right. And right. that worked well at Heroku, it worked well here. I've uh, from an industry pattern perspective, that's essentially what we see happening. Right. Um, um, but I do think of the cycles as one or two week sprints. Right. And I do think of uh, projects that can endure over multiple sprints. Right, right, right. So dialing it back a little bit, because I know we've kind of delved quite deep into, <laughs> into how we build uh, or just not just, just technology, but also projects. I think a lot of people who are listening to this would be fascinated to hear. Like, So GitHub, again, is such a notable platform, not just from people who are building technology, but you know, it's kind of like the king of or the queen of the nerds, right? Like GitHub, how GitHub is built as the as, as the platform that everybody's building technology on. I think people will be fascinated to hear how GitHub builds that technology, right? How do you think about? Let's imagine you've got a customer out there or a user out there um, or a collection of customers and users, and they say, "We want this feature. We want this thing." So that input comes into GitHub through whatever means. And then the organization basically comes to a conclusion that, yes, we should probably think about building this in some form. Now, there's a whole set of pieces, product engineering, other pieces that tend to occur, obviously, before that then appears in someone's web browser that they can use. What do you think is the optimal way that an idea goes from an idea into something that people can use? Like, How would you break down that process? Um, the short answer to a probably rather long process-oriented right. question is to ask um, a set of questions mm. about what the thing comes in. So you know, this, you know, 
everyone can see where this is going to go. I'm going to talk about Henry Ford and asking for more horses and cars. And Bring it on. Customers want a thing. You don't build the thing that customers want, typically. You actually right. have to ask why questions behind it. Right. Why are they asking for this? What problem are they trying to solve? What? Um, why yeah. is this useful to them? Right, exactly. Um, and so I like to see that information come in, and I like to see people who own the areas of the product right. really take those in on a daily, weekly basis and kind of refine uh, the, the backlog and the roadmap. So step one is how do you assign, like the, the owners, how they connected to your audience to get a pulse of that, right? Right. So think about this. At a, um, um, using my hands on a podcast, which is not going to go well. It's okay. But, um, Use your imaginations, people. <laughs> So if you think about like an organization at the highest level, it's trying right. to map out multiple years in strategy. Exactly, yeah. But yeah. then if you, you map it all the way down to the line of code execution, that has to happen on a daily basis. Right, right. And so somewhere in between there, you've got to map out between strategy as well as features. Right, right. Now, if you have the CEO of a company picking the features, you're in trouble. Right. Particularly as you scale. But if you have the engineering managers and the product managers picking the features and understanding how to do right. that, you're great. Yeah. Um, so somewhere in there, you've got to figure out what that mapping is right. for the organization. So yes, the customer request comes in for a product area. Somebody is very clearly the owner of that product manager or engineering manager. They take that in. They have a conversation about it. They, they talk to the customers. That's an important step that many technology organizations miss. Right. They get a request in via something or other and they say, that sounds good. I'll go build that as opposed to ask the customer what is going on, why this is important, right. and do a little bit of customer, customer development. Yeah, yeah. And then iterate on it. Um, and the important part, I think, that also um, many organizations don't do is they iterate on the, or they, they build this thing almost in isolation for some period of time and then release it mm. and expect everyone to be, yay. Right. But what they need to do, or in my opinion they should be doing, is involving uh, concentric circles, slowly expanding the number of customers who actually see this thing and getting feedback along the way. So by the time they actually release this to market, there's a set of people who are already raving fans of this feature. Uh, over so time. do you mean do you mean the people that that feature would impact essentially? Yeah. So it's kind of like change management, right? That you should gather input from in a change management process from the people that the change impacts because they're, they're going to know more about it and slowly expand out how many it. people have that. There's this um there's this notion of I think it's called a thousand raving fans. Whenever right. you're releasing a new product, if you can find a thousand people that won't stop talking about your thing, right. you're going to have a be a viral success. Well, Sounds like CrossFit. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! I know something that's very close to your heart, Jason. Yeah. Um, well. <laughs> That's a topic for another time. It is. It's, and I'm a little scared that I even mentioned that word, that we <laughs> may go off in a direction we don't want to go into. I'll break out my log right now and talk about the workout for today. <laughs> All right. Moving back. To, <laughs> meanwhile, back at the point. So, right. So you have these concentric circles. So and just slowly expand out the number of people that are seeing this over time. So if, right. if you, let's say you have a, um, a three-month release cycle that you want to get this feature to market. If by the by week three you're talking to five people, and week five you're talking to 35 people, and week um, six you've got a beta in place where you have 100 people who can't are giving you very good feedback on this thing, right. you're, you're trending in the right direction. But if nobody sees this between the time that you get input and the time you release it, very likely you're going to actually have to iterate in market, which is much harder to do. So. Would that be a case that if you, so it sounds like you're what you're saying, I don't want to put words in your mouth, is that when when these ideas come in from from your customers and your users, that your the the, the product owners will be able to get a sense of, okay, how do we internalize that feedback in a way that we think will serve the broader audience effectively. And obviously, in being, bearing in mind as well just the existing roadmap and what other things are happening in, yeah. in context. And then that would go into a product team, and they'd 
so what, tell me about that process. Like, is that do your product team basically manage that process and define what it's going to look like? And what's the connection between product and engineering? Because that's always a very sensitive piece it's, in the company. I, I prefer that they they think of themselves as a unit, and we use a, an, right. a, a notion that we um, heard first from Dropbox called EPD, okay. which is Engineering Product and Design okay. Squad. So an Engineering Product Design Squad will handle all of those things effectively. A product team. Okay, so that's is that an engineering lead? Or is that an engineering lead, a product lead? Like and a product a manager, engineering manager, and a designer. And a designer, right. And they're all together kind of working as a... So a little tiger team of people who work together on that specific yeah. thing. Right. And then an engineering team behind the scenes and right. um, working on that too. Um, and I, I prefer that they... I strongly prefer that they keep at least three lists of things, not just a roadmap and a backlog, but they keep three lists too, which is doing, not doing, and important, but not right now. Right. Because it indicates also that... You know these things are super important. The customer feedback can come in; it's a great idea, but we just don't have time for it right now, or it's not on the priority. But you have to bucket them so that people know right. internally how you're thinking about this as well. Right. So, so, so that little team, they. It sounds like what you do is you'd work on a first iteration of that, right? And then you'd present. Would you then present that to some customers and users and get their input, and then kind of evolve it until you get to a point where you feel like it's basically serving the the core tenet of what you're trying to accomplish here? There's a couple of different things. Um, yes, largely yes. Right. Um, however, there are always exceptions to that. So as an example, if, if if the initiative is super strategic and we want to keep it quiet for a little while. I was going to say, like, how do you bear in mind like confidentiality so, in this piece? Right? Um, when we were doing um, GitHub Actions, right. we actually went and talked to as many people as possible because, one, we were trying to change the idea of what GitHub was in the market. Yeah. So we were saying, hey, this is what we're going to do. But post-acquisition, we actually kept it much more quiet because mm. we didn't want people to know we were going to release CI with it. Right, right, right. So we took two different tacks on the same project based upon the need of the company. Right. So um, I think it all depends. It's like a very much yeah. a depends answer. Yeah. But also, if it's a hugely strategic project that we want to keep quiet and you know, there's an executive sponsor who is super close to it, like myself. Right. We'll probably do iterations inside mm. um, with some customers or some um, really tight knit, uh, like we call them tastemakers. Right. And we'll pull them in and into a very inner circle-ish sort of way. Right. And, and do a loop that looks like that. But then there's other stuff that we'll just push out to folks really quickly. Yeah, like you say, it's got to be dependent on the individual instance, yeah. right? And that's got to be a great, just from a customer relationship perspective, right? That's got to build some really strong foundational like relationship elements of like, we want to involve you in this process. We want to incorporate into this. Have you seen, have, how have you seen that kind of process impact the relationship between GitHub and its users in that well, regard? When, when I joined GitHub, the common word on the street was GitHub hasn't actually done much. Right. in a three-year time period. But I think yeah, there was that Dear GitHub letter in 2016 yeah, or something I think it was like something that. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Um, so just for people who don't know what that is, basically some members of the GitHub community wrote a, uh, a joint letter that basically shared some frustrations that GitHub wasn't being responsive to some feedback. And uh, it was a relatively small set of signatories in the scheme of things, but it was still a very public uh, yep. issue. So anyway, carry on. So I think that um, uh, GitHub's evolution has been much more customer focused mm. in the last couple of years but when you're starting from zero and you're trying to get to a, a very customer focused organization you have paths that you'll you'll go on right. so what i have seen 
from an iteration standpoint is almost no listening to customers when I joined right. to with Nat coming in, kind of some of the focus that he brought on customers to having daily, weekly roundups with maintainer communities and right. resource communities. And, you know, the difference is kind of stark. That's um, awesome. And, yep. and it's much more obvious that, um, in retrospect, that the product just gets better when you involve customers. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, because that's, that's been my philosophy as well. Is <clears throat> And I tend to think of it when it comes to, to community strategy is the answers to your questions live in, your, in the minds of your audience, right? It's just how do we get that input out in a way that we can we can we can understand how that can impact what well, we're trying to build. It's not unlike running an organization internally. Interestingly, if right. you're building a product or you're running an organization, I'd bet you if you had the gnarliest, hairiest problem in your organization, there's a very smart person who has the answer to that. Yeah. And but if you run an organization from an exclusively tops down model, right. You are pushing those that information and, and th- those solutions away. Right. If you're building a product the same way, where it's completely your ideas only, exclusively, you're pushing some smart stuff from the community and feedback from the customers out. Exactly. Right. And eventually, you'll have frustration from your customers. But if you're running your organization the same way, you'll have frustration from your employees, and they'll right. move on. Exactly. So that actually neatly leads onto something I was I was wanting to ask you about. Was <clears throat> one of the things I see pretty commonly with a lot of companies is. I think GitHub, in my mind, is is one of one of a number of great examples of this really productive, powerful internal collaborative workflow. Like when I talk to Hubbers, they love working here, and one of the reasons why they love working here is because they do feel like they're doing meaningful work, and they can feed into all of these different projects. And you know, as Dan Ariely and various other behavioral economists have talked about, like the the, the importance of meaning is critical. Um, you contrast that with some command and control organizations. Like we see a lot of this in financial services where the the decision making comes from the top and then it propagates through the ranks. And some people in those kinds of organizations can be a little frustrated because they sit in their cube and they basically are given a, t- a task list of things that their managers want to work on. And one of the things I've noticed is, is um, hiring the right kind of managers to manage teams and facilitate that kind of collaborative culture it's a relatively rare skill. There are some people who are very good at it, but the, the, there is sometimes a certain amount of siloing and a natural inclination to to control the parameters of a team. So when you've been looking to hire people running these kinds of teams, how do you find people with the right kind of mindset where you can, again, have the right level of decision-making, but in a way where the team really feels like they're involved and they're doing meaningful work and they can actually influence what's going on? So I think I'm going to answer this question a little differently, mm. which is to say that our industry does not develop people mm. to have that skill. We actually train people from a very early time to take orders or listen, right? As opposed to develop a certain, a different type of muscle, right? And in this case, the muscle is ownership, in my opinion, right? Which is if you feel ownership over a thing, yeah, and, and you're empowered to make that decision, you'll start to develop that set of skills. Yeah, yeah, totally. So when I'm looking for people um, in this, I'm looking for folks who either want that or have that already or can, can be tuned to that if they're in the right environment. Yeah. Though it's it's actually quite rare, to be honest with you, because yeah. most organizations now, um, while they say they aspire to be this, there is a set of four or five, six, seven people in the organization who will make almost all the, the decisions to yeah. say, go do this. Right. And then they will review the changes and say, yes, yes, no, 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 and 
move on from that. And it seems like even it can even be, in my mind, a little bit worse in the sense of you may have the internal dialogue is or the internal narrative is we want to incorporate everyone in our organization to play a role and shape our future. There is not an organization in the world that will not say that. Right, exactly. A handful that can actually that can actually that. do that. So I think that what can happen is you then have an unwritten set of power dynamics yeah. where people like, well, they keep saying that I can play a role in this, but I know really that I can't because of, like you say, this 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 consolidation of of power and influence. It's, I think that early on, a set of companies also tried to solve this with a flat structure or no managers or right. any of those things. And then obviously, like, that doesn't scale. Yeah. Um, but the idea is everyone was trying to aspirationally get to these things. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't think any organization can fully scale to its full potential if you basically don't empower people um, yeah. to the lowest level of decision-making possible. Mm. And the way that you, you do that, I believe, is that executives in the organization have to control only a certain set of things. One, you've got to understand who the... the um, what you do and how you do it. Yeah, you've got to have um, a standard for uh, what you allow to happen inside your organization. If you allow a certain set of dis- um, conversations to happen or, or uh, types of engagement, if you allow a very productive asshole to be in your organization, <laughs> that is a signal to the organization. Your culture will now modify itself to say that is an acceptable thing. Particularly mm. if you reward that person. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't think that I think there's only a set of decisions that executives can and should make. And then there's another set of decisions that they, they, um, you should push on to managers and, and empower those folks to do that. But it's an ego hit. Yeah. And it's a it's a psychological hit. And a lot of people got into this for power dynamic games. Mm, mm. And truthfully, the industry rewarded it. If you look around the industry for the last 25 years or so, where they rewarded kind of narcissistic personalities to yeah. come in and run organizations. Yeah. Um, and I got weirdly, I got this question a lot uh, post acquisition, mm. which was what uh, I don't. Uh, what would I want to be remembered for? Right. Uh, is the best way to say that. I'm like, I want to be remembered that if I if there's only one thing I ever did in the industry, it was that I can show that you can have massive success by being human focused. Yes. And building an organization that can do that and yeah. scale and not be a complete and utter asshole. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. And you know, unfortunately, the pattern that pattern doesn't really exist yet. Right. We still think that the Steve Jobs, the Larry Ellisons of the world, are going to be massively successful because they come and bang tangle tables, <laughs> throw things against the wall, and people are go do things. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that when you look at um, the most well-known leaders in technology, and when you think of people like Mark Zuckerberg, Larry Ellison, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. Um, a lot of these leaders are known for being somewhat maniacal in some ways in terms of how they've approached their work. And there's been this notion of, yeah, but look how rich they are, which drives me nuts when people say that. Like, I don't care. Like, I don't care how much money you've got. I care more about the content of your character and the approach, the way in which you approach things. But if you break that down, it seems like one thing that I've noticed is and well, not just I've noticed this, the science behind this is that human beings mimic other human beings, right? So to your point earlier on, if you get asshole behavior at the top, it will trickle down and, and people will think that it's okay to do that. Yep. And people don't know how to, <laughs> there's different flavors of asshole behavior, right? So there's going to be different ways in which that's going to manifest. Um, but also if you, uh, so human beings mimic other human beings. So therefore, if you have the right kind of behavior, I think people 
will mimic that behavior as well in a positive way. So it strikes me that this, yeah, oh, go ahead. To, to your point, I, I, I talk about this internally a lot, particularly when I first got here because GitHub's history internally and the way it operated and um, some of the challenges they had. Right. I say, I'm gonna hold myself to a certain standard and my standard is going to be higher than what I'm currently holding the organization to because I, 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 I know anything, if I know anything about human behavior, it's this. If I have a bad day, that is now the high bar for the entire organization. So if someone come, sees me coming in and I am super snarky right, or I'm pointing at someone in a way that I don't feel good about later, it doesn't matter how I feel about it. That now becomes the standard yeah. by which everyone else thinks is an acceptable Yeah, behavior. it's been infused into the atmosphere. So you brought up, uh, and, <laughs> and Bill, if you're listening to this later, uh, yeah. <laughs> There was a point in time when you had a reputation, let's just say. Um, but look at Satya. Satya's reputation at Microsoft these days is amazing. And right. he does it for, through character yeah. and through empathetic leadership. But the other ones that we mentioned, they, their reputation is that they will, they're maniacal. Right. And they will, they will push people through walls to get stuff done. Right. And that, that only goes so far. But they're rich. Right. So maybe the outcome is okay. And that's not what I want to be remembered for. No, I agree with you. Uh, and, I, I, and I think most people agree with this. But I get the impression that there's just a, for a lot of people, there's like, what do I need to do to be successful? And I, if I have to subscribe to that behavior, then I have to subscribe to it, which so, to me is crazy. So I've been doing this for about 25 years. Right. We've been, yeah, more. Getting up there. Yeah, I we're, know. We're, are you trying to suggest that we may be uh, <coughs> aging? Yeah, I think Mr. there's a, a thing like I have a, too much gray hair at this point. Yeah, but, but thank God we look as good as we do, <laughs> right? I mean, obviously we're both deeply into cross, CrossFit. <laughs> okay, that was a lie. I'm not into CrossFit. Um, I think that the truth is that most people don't know how. Mm. And, it's, and the maniacal is the easier approach. Mm. And it's, um, it's just easier to be dictatorial. Yeah. And if you lack a skill set or uh, an example, then it's um, you're going to default to it. And I've been doing this. I've been doing executive management now for quite some time. Yep. And I will. I actually say it is so much easier to be a tops-down, dictatorial yep. executive. You just go do this, go do that. I don't want any questions. Yeah, uh, I'm yep. in charge. Go do yep. it. It's, Solve it's, it. It's super easy to do. It's super easy. Right. The other one is hard. Yeah. Really really hard, messy, uh, kind of like weirdly emotionally involved. Right. And so, you know, you've got to, and it, it's actually humbling too, because you're not right a lot right. of the time and you have to be open to feedback and criticism uh, and, and saying, I was wrong. Help me understand how to do this. And that's right. So, and I think this is one of those things where it's kind of like when we, when you see people talking about failure, right? The, the prescribed theory in the world of, of, of leadership is, you know, you have to embrace failure, you have to understand it, you need to be open to it, you need to use it as an op op opportunity to to improve, there's an obstacle in every single barrier that you, you, you confront. But then the reality of how people, like, I think people sit in seminars and they agree with that kind of stuff, but then it just completely goes out the window for some people when they when they start, you know, thinking about how well, it applies. It's into the difference between like reading a book and understanding the contents of the exactly. book. Exactly. Yeah. So, what do you think? I mean, like you say, you've been in this game for a while now. What do you think people need to do? Like, if if someone's listening to this and they're like, let's say, the CEO of a company, or they are the, you know, they're running a large project, whatever it might be, they're in a leadership position. What do you think that they can do to really embody this? more positive but but focused and productive way of engaging with people so I think there's two things I think that um, there's 
two ends of the spectrum that people need to understand. Mm. At one end is the dictatorial, um, you're gonna be highly productive, you're gonna get stuff done, but at the end of the day, you're gonna burn through people. Yeah. At the other end are the culture people, mm. people who always talk about culture. Both ends of the spectrum, I think, are, are false analogies. Like, right. you can't sit exclusively at either no, end exactly. of this. Yeah. So you have to marry the results with the behaviors and, and those things. So it's like I, that's what I say is, what we do and how we do it. They both have to be married. Leadership is sitting with both sides of those in harmony. Yeah. Um, so what I think you need to do is understand true introspective style if you are one side of those. And I was probably too much at the culture side early on and a little bit further to the how we get things done at one point in my right. career. Right, the I pendulum has kind of swung. You, so right. be really, really introspective. Which one are you? And sometimes, you know, CEOs or heads of um, large organizations don't want to feel that uncomfortableness where... It's the old Simpsons thing. It's like, am I the one who's out of touch? No, no, it's the kids. It's the kids. <laughs> but, you know, if, if you can actually do that and say, you know what? I am kind of at the dictatorial end. Right. Uh, so let me go figure out what it means to be a little bit more collaborative. And you're going to screw up a whole bunch of times when you're trying to roll that out. Right. Um, yeah. But, you know, you've got you to practice it. And practice it small. Practice it in aspects of your life that may not be as material. But, you know... Yeah, just do, do something do every something. day. Yeah. It strikes me as well that um, just good examples and good stories, like I feel like human beings tend to learn through stories. And you hear these fabulous stories of, of people applying themselves in this way. Like one, one story that I've shared a number of times, um, and I just wrote about this in the new book, is about Martin Mikos, who's the CEO mm -hmm. of HackerOne. So for these, those people who are less familiar with, with Martin's work, you know, he... He's had a number of successful businesses. He was the CEO of MySQL and sold MySQL to Sun for, was it a billion, I think it was? Something like that. It was a lot of money. Um, and I remember being at an event in Las Vegas where they basically brought together their, their top-rated hackers in their community, right, for this hackathon, basically. And you'd imagine that someone with his pedigree, you know, the guy's made a lot of money. He's got a lot of great reputation in the industry. He's CEO of this company. And, you know, all of these people in his community are on site at their event. You'd imagine that an, a normal person would have a certain amount of, like, you're in my castle right now and <laughs> parade themselves in that way. He was the opposite. He just wanted to learn about their perspectives, their interests. And while they were hacking in this hackathon, he was going around getting people snacks and drinks. Yep. And it didn't just resonate with me. It resonated with a lot of people there who would say, can you believe that mine did that? And I feel like in many ways, the more we have those stories, as opposed to these stories of, you know, Steve Jobs screaming at somebody until something happened yeah. or, you know, we're not going to go down and work until, you know, these particular things have happened and people sleeping under their desks and these unhealthy habits that people talk about. It seems like that's a big chunk of it, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I think they need examples because uh, when I was growing up and getting into this, the only people I even ever heard of was Steve Jobs and Larry Ellison. In fact, when I got into management for the first time, I was told that, Unless I can mimic those behaviors, I was never going to have success. Really? And if you think about How did you feel when that, when that person, I'm not expecting you to tell me who said that. Well, you can afterwards when we stop recording. <laughs> but um, that must have rocked up against your, because you've always, I, I've only known you for about, what, 10, 12 years? 12 years, but, yeah. But, like, I know that you will have had the character that you've got back then. Mm-hmm. What was your reaction to that when well, he said that You're conflicted you? because you don't know if you're wrong. 
Right, because you're younger in your career, right? Right, and so you don't have the same sort of confidence or conviction that you might have now or I have now. Right. Um, I hadn't had a massive success at that point. I was learning, mm. and this person had some semblance of success and was kind of pushing. You're like, oh, maybe I am wrong. Maybe and my personality is one to reflect right. more than to yeah. to have bravado. And I'm, okay, you know, but then I asked my wife is a wonderful person, and you've met her a bunch, yeah. and you know that she is the. Yeah, much better than me. No, um, but considerably she's, more. <laughs> and she, not even within the same ballpark. No, it's a, she's uh, in every possible level a better human being. I'm just kidding. I will tell you actually. Uh-oh. We'll get to this one in a sec. I got the weirdest compliment from um, a, a boss once, and I thought it was the funniest compliment I ever got. The, this boss complimented me and said, "I knew there was something special about you because you got your wife to marry you." <laughs> I was like, th- th- "Thanks for the sideways." Compliment? Wow, there's many layers to that <laughs> comment. You know, it was awesome. I, I I think about that today. It was like I think it was about 15 years ago when they made that. comment. It reminds me of when I first met Erica. And for those people who, who don't know this, so Erica and Jason worked together. Erica's on the exec team at GitHub as mm-hmm. well. And and when I remember bringing Erica to an Ubuntu developer summit when we just got together, and everybody was looking at me as if to say, <laughs> "Dude, what happened? <laughs> really? <laughs> you know." Has this woman got impeccably low standards? Like, what's happening? So, and and she does not just, just to be clear. Well, yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. Well, Joan's an okay guy. Yeah, that's yeah, debatable. But um, Anne, <laughs> anyway, Anne Marie said to me, she said, she said, she doesn't swear, but she would have right. basically said, "F that guy." Right. But what she really said was, "Do, do you want to be remembered that way?" And she's the one who I've had um, ever since the acquisition and the word got out about what I had done before the acquisition with GitHub yes, and yeah. how it got to this point. I've had lots of opportunities for different things. And Anne-Marie has pointed out every time, she said, you're not, if you ever work again in the industry and do whatever, right. you're never going to take a job. No. Um, you, if the situation is right, you're not going after, you don't want to be remembered for doing X, Y, or Z. You don't want to be doing, yeah. um, working in those types of things. Like, have a standard for yourself. Yeah. Uh, you know who you're going to work with, how you're going to work, um, all that sort of stuff, yeah. and have some build some conviction around it. It's yeah. hard when you're younger. It's hard when you don't have a lot of experience. But she helped me have a little bit more confidence in it. Like you know, she's a safety net at home. Yeah. She, you know, you you come home. There's some stability in the home life. Even right. If shit is wrong at work. <laughs> Um, which is an actually a really important thing, dynamic that at play. You know, you have to have some stability somewhere, I think, in your life if you're going to go yeah. into a messy situation. It, if it's messy everywhere, it's hard. Right. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, so when I was growing up, my dad, I, I love my parents, and my dad is one of the most ethically sound people I've ever met. And and he's always instilled in me, and it's always sat with me, and a notion of, like, you've got to do the right thing. You you are going to make mistakes, and you'll screw yep. up sometimes. And from time to time, you may hurt people's feelings unintentionally, but you need to own them, and you need to apologize if that happens. And I always think of this as like a rocking chair moment, that when you're like 85 yeah. years old, you're sat in your rocking chair, most of your friends have passed away, you're sat there, you've outlived everyone, despite the amount of gin you've been drinking. Um, and you look back, and, you, and nobody ever says, I think, um, I wish I'd worked more. Everybody yeah. says, you know, I wish I'd spent more time with my family, with my friends. I wish I'd p- pursued my hobbies and my interests. So I think that's so critical, like having that that sense of doing the right thing, not just sleeping well at night, but being able to say, like, I'm proud of what I did and the approach that I took, right? Yeah, and, you know, at the end of the day, another, another weird uh, comment that one of my old bosses made me was like, I'm... I have a lot of friends in this industry, 
but I have a lot of friends because we made a lot of money together. Right. And that person no longer has friends because there's no, there's no transactional value. Right. They've moved on from the industry. Yeah. There's this weird thing at play, which yeah. is, that's not what I'm after. No. You and I are going to be friends forever. Exactly, yeah. You know, and I have a, you have a set of friends, I have a set of friends. Yeah. We're all going to be friends after exactly. this. It doesn't matter if we can do something for yeah. each other. Yeah, exactly. GitHub and work, frankly... It's an interesting talking point, but the friendship is a deeper thing than that, yeah. right? And I think like when you think about work in this context is, um, I have a saying which is, reputations last longer than roles. Mm. Your job is to maintain your reputation while doing your role. So you need to get stuff done at work. You need to, to be successful, you need to ship product, you need to do whatever, but you need to maintain your, um, your reputation while doing that. Right. So if you're going to burn people out to get something done, your reputation hit meter is going down, 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 <laughs> right. down. And if you do that long enough, no one in the industry is going to want to hire you. Yeah. But yeah. if you can't, if you you have the culture reputation all the way up here, but you don't ship, that's another reputation. Down. Oh, yeah, for sure. So the point being, like, if you think about it that way, don't do the short-term get something done, but for the long-term loss, maintain the long-term of your reputation. It'll automatically make you do the right things, in my opinion. Right. It'll it'll stop you from talking about that person behind their back or going and saying this snarky comment or right. doing one of those exactly. things. Exactly. So I, I, one thing I'd like to get into before we I think people will 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 throw hand grenades into into our house if, uh, <laughs> if I don't ask you about, obviously, the acquisition. But before I get to that, um, a lot of what we're talking about, I think, is, you know, what what you think? What I think are effective ways to to do work, but also then the tonality and the approach that work. Mm-hmm. There's going to be some people listening to this who are either at the beginning of their career, or they're thinking about getting into this, or um, maybe they're in an underrepresented group, mm-hmm. and so they're looking at this big machinery that's in front of them of this industry and how it operates, and they're trying to figure out how they can, you know, find their home in that industry and make their make their future, right? Mm. What would you recommend to people who are at the beginning of that journey in terms of like, what would you suggest as a set of steps that they should take? Um, So uh, internally I've talked about this, but I don't think I've ever said it too wide. Um, I tried to quit tech twice because I didn't like the industry that much. Right. Um, It was hard. Um, Like you said, the machinery of tech is in front of you. Right. It almost looks like there's a proletariat with the VC community out right. there and things of that nature. <laughs> right. um, you have to figure out um, what you're going to be about mm. a little bit. But it's hard because the advice I'm going to give is going to be a little bit like you have to go do work. But it's true. I, no matter where I think you find, you're going to actually have to go do work. Yeah. So you're going to have to find your community. And, and yep. you got to luck into a mentor or somebody who can give you advice. Right. Um, but I, th- I think the easiest way to, to do this is if you're on the technical side, find a community of people. Mm. On the, you know, If you're in a Python community, yep. get involved with a project if you can or something like that. Now, this is, again, it's work. Yeah. Um, but it will help. But start somewhere, start somewhere and do something. Yeah. Essentially. And the um, um, go to meetups, have conversations, try to right. f- try to find a set of people where you can actually have some industry conversations. Yeah. Um, I went for about 10 years uh, before I really felt that I was in the tech community. Mm. Um, and that's a long time. I was, you know, uh, close to 30. Right. Um, of working for, you know, before I felt that I 
started to understand the, the industry. Yeah. So find the community. Um, the other set of things is consume information as much as possible, but have critical lens on who's giving the information and what their incentive structure right, is. Right, right. So like, uh, if someone's telling you to quit school to go join a startup, understand that if they're a VC, there's an incentive structure <laughs> there for them to say to go do this. Yeah, it's kind of like when you watch news networks. Right. Think about where that news is coming from and their yeah. agenda and whatever, right? And, and, eventually, and, and realistically, start developing your own uh, frameworks and convictions and kind of view of the world so that it'll you can know how to navigate this because everyone is going to give you advice and it's all free and um, sometimes worthless yeah but know how to uh, filter that out and that's probably the most useful skill is know that when someone gives you a piece of information it's worthless right but if this piece of information is valuable and b between the two of them you're gonna have to be able to track that down right um, but I think the most important thing that you could possibly do is talk to as many people put yourself out there it's uncomfortable for people um, yeah to, to go out but I at this point answer every single email someone sends to me I answer every LinkedIn request yeah I say I can't help you right now but here's where I would go look or I yeah. would recommend you go read this resource or right. go read this book yeah um, and I think that you know, people should feel okay doing that. I yep. didn't when I was younger. I think that's something No, that so important, right. And as someone goes through that journey and they invariably are going to hit some road bumps and they're probably going to have a certain amount of imposter syndrome, they're going to be, you know, beating themselves up about, oh, I screwed that up. How would you suggest that when, they, when they're kind of sat there, at n when they're laid in bed at night and they're thinking through what they did that day and they feel like they've made a mistake or they have made a mistake in whatever form it may be, how do you, what would you, your guidance, like how does the little Jason Warner sitting on their shoulder when they're thinking those thoughts, what would you say to them for how they interpret that and process those that kind of? Uh, so one, with mistakes, I think it's important to never compound the mistake by one saying it's not a mistake, right. trying to hide it or deflect the actual thing. Learn right. from it. Yeah. This is a retrospective sort of way. Like when you have an incident, you don't just say, no, 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 we weren't down. We were, <laughs> we were, your internet was broken. <laughs> no, no, no. We, uh, the goal of this is to get better. So. This is our variable availability service. That's right. <laughs> um, so just treat it like a, a, a moment to get better. You know, right. it's. Um, so it's kind of like face it f full on. And, and if someone comes to you and says, hey, that feels like a mistake. Don't get defensive, right. because that's the natural thing. I, I still get defensive these days right. on, on certain things, but it doesn't. It's not that productive, and you're not learning anything. And then all of a sudden, this relationship happens right. in a weird way. Yeah. So reflect on it. Get better. Um, the other one is just know that everybody uh, is making mistakes every single day. Yeah. Um, and the size and scope of things change as you're you progress in your career and you know um, everyone has the hacker news story of like hey when was the last time you deleted the production database <laughs> um, know that everyone has massive massive mistakes yes and um, I mentioned Satya earlier I guarantee you that Satya goes to sleep at night thinking I messed that up today oh I messed yeah. this up and he's now the CEO of the most valuable company in the world right and he's still thinking of those things. Because he's self-reflective, mm -hmm. right, in, a, in, a, in an objective. So that leads me on to, it, on to the acquisition. So, uh, you know, obviously um, GitHub was acquired mm -hmm. by Microsoft, $7.5 billion, which is a, a pretty decent number of billions, I would argue. <laughs> um, and I think for a lot of people who've been in open source for a long time, this has been a really fascinating journey because, you know, back in the earlier days of open source, particularly like the late 90s, 
Microsoft were very uncomfortable with the notion of open source and free software. And bug number one. Yeah, exactly. And bug number one, uh, you know, for Canonical and Ubuntu was to reduce my, Microsoft's uh, monopoly. And um, the company has changed significantly over the years. Back in those days, a lot of people, myself included, were very critical of, of Microsoft's approach yep. to this. But the company has changed significantly, and I would argue, especially since Satya Nadella yep. has come into, into, into his leadership role um, as CEO. And yes, there are some people who are still worried about Microsoft and the influence that they have. And I think some of those folks are more on the free software side of the fence, where there's a lot of companies won't be able to meet that definition of those freedoms. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of is what it is in some ways. But certainly in the open source side, I think people are increasingly respecting, not just, you know, forgiving Microsoft, but respecting just the sheer level of investment and work that Microsoft is putting into uh, investing in tons of projects, right? So I think in the industry, certainly it wasn't a surprise that Microsoft acquired GitHub, and there weren't that many companies who would necessarily have the money or the relationship with developers to do that well. Yep. Um, what's it been like since this has happened? Because you 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 were part of this acquisition process. Mm -hmm. um, how is that relationship with Microsoft? Is GitHub relatively autonomous in this regard? And like, what is the perspective from Microsoft on how GitHub is operating on just a week-to-week -week basis? Uh, so we're um, Nat is a CEO right. of GitHub, which right. indicates that we are an independent entity, just like Jeff Weiner is a CEO of LinkedIn. Exactly. Right. So what I say uh, is that Microsoft, in some of its major acquisitions like GitHub or LinkedIn, um, are, is trying to run uh, kind of like an archipelago model, right. which is uh, there's the Microsoft landmass underneath the water that is binding the Hawaii island chains together. Right. But each one of the islands is its own independent island. Right. Its own so, culture. Yeah. And so that's essentially what we're doing. Right. Um, and it's going well. And I think that's a good model. I think from a corporate perspective, that's quite an interesting model. It's very different than, say, uh, some of the other ones we've seen in the industry, which are basically PE models. We're going to buy you. Right. We're going to roll you up. We're going to find a way to eke out some more revenue and kind of like lower investment and that sort of thing. No, we're an independent company. We just happen to be backed by the most um, valuable company in the world. Well, because the thing is, as well, is Microsoft has got so much, like, for example, just selling to large organizations. Yes. Yeah. Uh, HR, just the mechanics of running a large business and doing sales. Microsoft has been doing that for years, right? Yeah, there's, there's some things they've figured out. Right, you'd hope. Yes, exactly. Um, but, you know, I mean, let's be honest, every, um, when any smaller organization goes into a larger organization and it is subsumed, invariably there is a cultural hit and the people at the organization going in tend to experience a lot of frustration. So that to me seems like another reason why this is a good idea because from what I can tell, being married to the COO of GitHub as well as being friends with a ton of people at GitHub, the culture really hasn't changed in a negative way at all. It's actually changed in a, in a pretty positive way. Yeah, there's there's a couple important things I think that were at play here. One is um, uh, not to sound too egotistical, but there are effectively two people in the world that could have run GitHub as CEO. Mm. Uh, Nat Friedman and myself. Yeah. Um, Nat and I have like very similar histories. We grew up in the open source community. Exactly. We ended up yeah. running Linuxes. We're developer-oriented. Um, and we just so happen to be at the same company now doing the thing that we do. And that was an important thing 
coming in is that Nat was going to be the CEO. It wasn't going to be an industry veteran who was 25 years of Microsoft coming in and doing that. This was a different type of a person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the other side of it is, um, yeah, the culture hasn't really changed from what we were. As you said, it's gotten probably better. Um, but it's not going. It's not trending towards Microsoft's culture. Microsoft has its own unique culture, just like LinkedIn does. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to have our own, and that's an important thing for us yep. to do because we serve a different customer. At the end of the day, we serve developers directly. Yeah. Microsoft serves developers a lot of times through their the enterprise entities. We serve right. developers directly. Right. It's a very exactly. different thing. Yeah. And even though I. Um, disagree with many of the critics of Microsoft today, people who are untrusting of Microsoft, people who are still of the view as we were 10 years ago, or, well, longer than I wrote M dollar sign in 1999. M dollar sign, right. Um, I want to make sure that they have a voice, because but how would you respond to the critic who says, this is Microsoft's uh, way of wheedling their agenda into the open source world and taking control? So, so How would you respond to that? I, I would say I understand. Right. I would say I understand why they would have that um, mm -hmm. sort of notion, but uh, I would also say that I think everyone gives people too much credit for their nefarious or, or for their ability to plan out multiple years in very strategic <laughs> ways. That is just not a right. thing that enters people's consciousness. It's like, what's the old saying? It's like incompetence or malice type of thing. Like, oh yeah, yeah. There's there's no way that people are thinking out that far. Like, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna own the developer community by buying an asset, and then for the next three years, right. that's just not the We'll meet in the hollowed out volcano. Exactly. We'll it's put just, our plan together. This is not a, a Jack Ryan, Clive Cussler <laughs> novel type of thing. It's just, uh, at the end of the day, the world is full of humans, and they have human needs and desires and yep. things of that nature. But I would say I understand, because Microsoft's history was so anti developer for oh, but particularly open, open source, source for, yeah. uh, for quite some time yeah um, but there was a different regime I say you have to judge Microsoft by its actions and its continued actions yeah and then the other side of it too is uh, again coming from that side of the world for for a long time I say right I really understand I was excited about Microsoft partnership given what I saw yep. from that side of the world and there's very few entities in the world that could have taken on GitHub and the entire developer community of yep. the world right. and done it well. Yeah. And let's just say that the percent chance of it going wrong with all the other corporate entities that would have been in the space that could afford us and all that sort of stuff would have been really high. Yeah. Microsoft's yep. percent chance of screwing it up, or, or, or maybe a positive way of saying it, percent chance of success, was orders of magnitude higher than right. all the other ones. Yeah. That, that was my kind of inclination, too. And I share your view that, again, like I, I, I understand people feeling uncomfortable with the acquisition, particularly people who've been around open source for a long time, who have a view of their head about this. But to me, it's the same reason why I don't think the moon landing was faked. I don't believe that many people could keep that big of a secret. Like human beings are blabbermouths. It's I. We can't help it. No, everyone wants to talk about all uh, the things. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I I agree with you, and I guess the proof is in the pudding. And at least from what I've seen so far, um, under Nat's leadership and your leadership and everybody else, like I, we're seeing the right kind of patterns. Like GitHub has been more responsive to to customer needs and is still investing significantly in the open source world. Right. Yep. I say there's two things um, at play here. One is. Uh, as a leader inside an organization, I have to earn the right every day to be 
be the leader the next day. I should right. think of it that way. But we as GitHub, the entity for the developers in the world, we have to earn the right every day to serve the developers. Yep. So if you take just those two things at play, it's going it's to dictate how you behave a lot of times in the world. But as an entity, we have to earn the right for the developers to continue to operate on us. Yep. And that's going to cause a set of decisions to not be made or made. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that to me seems like a good point to to end on. I think like I mean, Jason, you know this without this turning into a love fest for everybody who's listening to this. You're you're one of the people I most respect in this industry and Thank it's you. not just because of the work that you've done. It's the tonality in which, in which you've done it and I think that I mean, anyone who knows Nat as well and his history, like his involvement in open source I think there's a reason why when this acquisition happened, I think if Nat wasn't put in that position and someone from Microsoft, yeah. such as, and even if it was someone such as Scott Gu, like who I know that he, he wouldn't take that role because he's owning a whole bunch of things at Microsoft, I think it would have been a very different level of perception. But the fact that there are people with significant levels of open source experience who are involved on the leadership team and GitHub is still doing what it's doing and still a well-loved part of the open source world, I mean... It's an interesting time to be alive, for sure. Right. Um, there is a developer centricity in the world right now. Everyone mm. recognizes it. And um, there's a very small set of people in the entire industry that could actually credibly yeah. have these conversations. Yeah. And it's not that these people aren't massively successful in their own right, but developers themselves are a skeptical, skeptical, skeptical audience. And you've got to be able to earn their respect. You know? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, thank you, sir. We really thank appreciate you. it. And we'll talk to you sometime soon. Awesome.